Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody tonight. We had to miss last Wednesday night because of Vacation Bible School, but we are back and looking at Zechariah chapter 14, the very last chapter of the prophecy. So we will look at one half of it tonight, one half of it next Wednesday night. So we'll actually wrap up Zechariah next Wednesday night. Uh, and so um, that'll, that'll conclude our, our, uh, our study of the prophecy there. What we'll do after that is we'll have assorted topics and that we'll have on Wednesday nights throughout the rest of the summer. At the end of the summer, starting August the 30th, is where we'll start the new study. And we're going to be looking at 1 Peter. I think that you're really going to enjoy 1 Peter. 1 Peter is interesting because it was written, of course, obviously about Peter, Peter the disciple of Jesus, uh, to, a, to a group of believers who'd been scattered to a culture that believe differently than they believed. And so a lot of it is about how do you function in a culture that's the believing differently than you believe. And that's very much our day. Uh, and so a lot of it applies to, to, to our day. And I think that you'll find it to be interesting. In fact, Peter called them aliens. They're, they're living in a foreign culture. We're living in a post-truth culture is what theologians call it now. So I think that you'll find that to be interesting. I, I try to look at different uh, aspects of literature of, of, uh, of genres of, of the Bible to present to you the whole counsel of God as I teach. So we looked at the apocalyptic literature in Revelation on Wednesday nights and then we now we've gone to Old Testament prophecy. Now we'll go back to New Testament epistles. So I want to be sure and cover all the uh, the whole counsel of God as we teach and preach uh, through his word here at First Baptist. So that's where we'll be going next. That will start August the 30th and again I think that you'll find it to be a, a, a very relevant study to our world today and speaks a lot to believers as we try to live out our faith in a culture opposed to what we believe uh, very much of the time. All right, let's pray together and then we'll get started chapter 14 verses 1 through 11 tonight. Father, it's a privilege to teach your word and to study your word and to have you spoken, have it spoken to us and, and you speaking to us as we open up its pages so I pray tonight that as we, as we study your word together, that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. You'd give us wisdom and insight into what we need to know. And I thank you for this powerful prophecy of Zechariah, what you've spoken to us so far through all the 13 chapters, and pray this last chapter this week and next week, that God, you would, um, would again give us wisdom and insight as to what we need to know concerning your return in the last days here on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so turn with me, chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, and I hope that you do have your Bible with you. There's something about seeing it as we read it, as we discuss it together. Those of you watching online, we're glad to have you too. Hopefully you have a copy of God's Word in front of you where you can see it as we read it and uh, study it together. It, it's more meaningful, I believe, whenever you can see it. So glad that you can, uh, can do that. And uh, there will not have a quiz tonight, too much material to, to cover. I know you're disappointed. But next week, remember, is final exam. So you got to study for final exam next week in our final session. So that will be next Wednesday night. All right, letter A on your outline. Let's uh, quickly catch up to where we have been. As you know, uh, the end is nearing. The, some older Jews had returned to the homeland of Israel after exile in Babylon, they started trying to rebuild the land. They started with the temple, I mean the altars first, because they felt like that's how they were made right with God, forgiveness of sins. Imagine going 70 years, you don't think your sins are forgiven. So you want to recreate those altars back first where your sins can be forgiven, a method of doing that, and then of worshiping God. So the altars first, the temple, 
they, once they got started to rebuilding, their goal is to rebuild the city of Jerusalem that's lying in ruins after uh, the armies came through. So they got discouraged. Why would they get discouraged? Well, their neighbors, for one thing, were ha- they didn't want them to rebuild back. They didn't want a strong Israel anymore. They were discouraging them. Uh, it was hard work. There wasn't much money. They were mostly older. The younger ones stayed back in, in Babylon. They were raising their families. So it was mostly elderly. And so it was hard work. It's hard to rebuild back. Got discouraged and quit. And they stayed quit for 18 years before God raised up a prophet named Zechariah. Which remembers Yahweh, which uh, remember his name means Yahweh remembers, God hasn't forgotten you. And so uh, raised up Zechariah for two purposes to write the book. And as you know, number one, keep building. You're doing good, don't get discouraged and stop. Keep building the, the altars, the temple, Jerusalem, keep building it. Second reason, he wanted them to know that Jerusalem, their best glory days are ahead of them, not behind them. Uh, and better days coming. And uh, they probably thought, well, our best days are behind us, but no, your better days are ahead of you, and God has a plan for Jerusalem. So, in the final chapters of the book, he unveils not just Jerusalem, but Israel and how God's going to use that nation again. First of all, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, 520 years after Zechariah was written, Jesus would come for the first time. So, there's still purpose for the land. Christ will walk there. But second of all, at the end times, when he comes the second time, there will also be meaning and purpose for Israel and Jerusalem. So all of this is covered in Zechariah. To let those discouraged older Israelites know what you're doing in rebuilding is still going to be significant because God's going to use it when Jesus comes the first time and when Jesus comes the second time. So chapter, the outline of the prophecy of Zechariah split up, chapters 1 through 8, chapters 9 through 14. 1 through 8 dealt with more of the most immediate of rebuilding. Chapters 9 through 14 deal with the future of the land that's going to be rebuilt. 9 further divided, 9, 10, and 11 deal with Jesus in general, Jesus' first coming, and chapters 12, 13, 14 with his second coming. So tonight, as we get to chapter 14, we're looking at the last days of the world. Now, we've already kind of covered some of this in Revelation study, but you're going to find out new details tonight that Revelation doesn't talk about concerning the end times and what's going to happen in Jerusalem whenever it does. Now, just to let you know very quickly before we jump into to our passage tonight, just to let you know there are some Bible scholars who do not believe uh, that uh, the, the chapters 12, 13, and 14 actually deal with the second coming in the end times. Some say, well, no, that's previewing a a later invasion, maybe Titus in 70 AD, but it's not really talking about the end times. However, other Bible scholars, and I believe also the passage appears to be talking about the end times in the last days rather than when Titus would come in 70 AD. One reason, Titus came with a multinational army, brought terrible destruction, but God really didn't deliver them then like he's going to deliver them in the end times. So really, as you read Zechariah 14, it hasn't happened yet. You look back at history and you go, when has this happened? It hasn't. So I believe with those scholars that believe that it is talking about the futuristic end times, last days, and that's what we'll be talking about tonight. So just by way of, uh, of, of mentioning that before we get to our passage. All right, letter B on your outline. Let's look at 
the, uh, the first 11 verses of chapter 14, the coming day of the Lord, verses 1 through 11. Now, as we're looking at this, verse 1, behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you, Jerusalem, will be divided in your midst. Now, let's stop there for a moment. It seems to be introducing this last cosmic cataclysmic event that's going to happen when Jesus returns and Armageddon, the battle is fought over there. It appears to be talking about that. Dr. Merrill Unger, very well-respected New Testament scholar, said, quote, the last cosmic eschatological sweep of this last portion, talking about chapter 14, is almost without compare in all of prophetic literature for its richness of imagery, for its authority of pronouncements, and the majestic exaltation of the God of Israel to be worshipped as the God of the earth. I think he's right. I think he's exactly right. We're talking about the last cataclysmic event, chapter 14. God brings all things together and he defeats all the nations of the world. He rules as one, as King of kings and Lord of lords. So, Verse 1, behold, a day's coming when the spoil is taken from you, Jerusalem, divided in your midst. Now, he's talking about a day that's going to come when those nations will think they have Israel captured. Let me just kind of back up and go through the Revelation study. Remember chapter 16 talks about it just a little bit, that at the end times, nations of the world will form a coup against Israel, all the nations of from the north to south, it appears to be Russia, China. It appears to be a delegation of many of those coming together against Israel, and they're going to attack it. Uh, it talks about in Revelation, as they attack, uh, they think they're going to have it captured. They think they're going to have Israel and Jerusalem captured. And at the last moment, God's going to step in, rescue Jerusalem, rescue the people that are the ones that aren't killed, and He will uh, take control. Notice it calls it God's day, not their day in verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when your spoil taken from you in Jerusalem divided in your midst. So, we have seen God so far throughout some pages of, of, of prophecy here. God's power over nature. Now we see God's power over history. God's power over what's going to take place in the world, in the nations, in, in what's happening in the world around us. He is just as much in control of that as he is in control of the natural world. Verse 2, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, that's Armageddon, and the city shall be taken, Jerusalem will, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Let's talk about that for a moment. What's he talking about? If you remember from, from Revelation 16, verses 16 and 21, all the nations of Armageddon gather against Jerusalem and fight against it. They will get near to capturing it. They will plunder houses. They will rape women. It looks like they have the city captured, so they begin to divide the spoils of the city. One half of the residents, if you remember from Revelation, will depart as exiles. But the other one half will remain. 
This appears to be the one half of the one third that remained from chapter 13. Look back at chapter 13 right quick. One, one chapter earlier. Chapter 13 verse 8. It says, in the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. So now it appears of that one-third, one-half of them will remain and will not die, and they'll live in Jerusalem in the millennial period. It's what it appears to be like. But this hasn't happened yet. So we know that verse 2, the way it looks, has not been fulfilled. So let me just give you a quick summary. What does this look like historically? It appears there's going to be a worldwide ideology that develops that Israel disagrees with. The coup of nations are going to agree against Israel. They're going to come against Israel because Israel, in their minds, standing in the way of an international world order. Because Israel's the only one that will not comply. That's according to Dr. Baldwin, which I think he has a pretty good pulse on, on what's happening in, the, in this chapter. This world order, Israel disagrees, everybody else agrees, Israel's keeping us from it, let's go attack them, bring them in line, and that will then precipitate Armageddon. At the last moment, looks like Israel's captured by, these, by this world order, and God steps in and fights for Israel. Look at verse 3. He's actually the warrior. Verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Notice it doesn't say God will assemble armies to fight the, the, the nations. No. He's going to do it. God himself at Armageddon is going to be the warrior. He is the one that's going to do it. Now you say, isn't that kind of odd? Well, he, he's done it in the past. If you look at the Old Testament, there were times that God took the role of divine warrior and fought on behalf of his people. He did it in the Old Testament. He did it in Exodus chapter 14. Uh, he did it in Joshua 10 against the Canaanite cities. He did it in Joshua 23. He did it in Judges 4. He did it, did it in 2 Chronicles 20. So he has done it in the past where he just shows up. He doesn't use an army. He shows up. He's the divine warrior. He is the one going forth into battle, defending Jerusalem, defending his people, fighting on behalf of his people. And he's the one that wins the battle for his people. He's, he's the one that's victorious. So, once again, at the end, it appears that's going to happen just like it did in the Old Testament when God would fight for his people. Probably a lot of people here remember Vacation Bible School years ago where we would sing Onward Christian Soldiers as we marched into Every day to the, to the worship rally. That's how we began. We lined up, piano played, and we sang Onward Christian Soldiers. And we all got into place. Then we did our pledges and all that. Well, a lot of uh, denominations have taken that, that hymn out of the hymnal. Because they don't think it sounds good. God being on a warrior and, and God's people being militant. And with all the jihad around the world. And, 
and we should emphasize world peace, we shouldn't emphasize war, and so a lot of denominations have taken onward Christian soldier out of their hymnals because of that. But you know, there's no way around it. The Bible talks about one day God will meet the nations of the world to do battle, and He's going to be victorious, and He's going to win. Uh, and so that's what it is talking about here in verse 3 when it says the Lord himself will fight for his people. Now, of the first four verses, actually three verses, they're kind of out of order chronologically. So let me put a chronology to it. Here's how it appears it's going to happen in the last days. The nations will assemble to war against Jerusalem. That's verse 2. The city will be partially captured and plundered. That's verse 2. The spoil of the city is going to be started to be divided. That's verse 1. God will intervene, destroy the nations, and save Israel and save Jerusalem. And that's verse 3. So that appears to kind of be the order of verses 1 through 3, the chronology of what's going to happen. Now, starting verse 4, we start to get a little more specific as to what it's going to look like. So let's look at it. Verse 4. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Now, really interesting verse. When Jesus returns, second time, it appears that he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. By the way, we know he's going to do this. We're told in Acts 1.11 he's going to do this. You remember in the book of Acts, Jesus is about to ascend back to heaven and standing on the Mount of Olives, and he ascends before the disciples, and the disciples are watching him go up into heaven, and an angel appears and says, what are you doing watching into the heavens? Don't you know that this Jesus will come again in like manner at the end, at the end of the world? And so he's going to come in like manner. So he will, according to verse 4, descend back, set his feet on the Mount of Olives like he left, by the way, this is the only time the word Mount of Olives occurs in the Old Testament. Uh, it's referenced whenever in Samuel, 2 Samuel, whenever David, Absalom, was running from Absalom. It says he went up the slopes of the olives, but it's called it Mount of Olives. Um, this is the only time the Old Testament's called Mount of Olives. So on this day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. Now, the ancient peoples were east-oriented. So everything was to them in relation to east. So uh, it is described as in front of Jerusalem on the east. You go there today, Mount of Olives is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And it says that whenever he, he returns, the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, by a very wide valley, it says, half of it going to the north, half of it going to the south. So, God will split the mountain when Jesus returns in two with a massive earthquake that will split the Mount of Olives into some of it go north, 
some of it to the south. Now, just um, by way of interest, Israel is, sits right on top of one of the, um, the, the most dangerous rifts of, uh, in, in really anywhere in the world. It sits between four major tectonic plates. That's why there are so many earthquakes in that region. Turkey has a lot. Uh, Israel sits between four major tectonic plates, the Nubia plate from Africa, the uh, Anatolia from Turkey, the Sinai and the Arabia plate. And so it sits right there. So the Jordan Sea, it's called the Jordan Sea Rift, which is like the San Andreas Fault in California. I was reading about it today. The only difference is San Andreas Fault is very complicated. The Dead Sea Rift is very deadly, but very simple. They know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, it runs all the way from the Sea of Galilee in the north, runs exactly right down the, the Jordan River, all the, through the Mount of Olives, going all the way to the southern to the peninsula. And, and so the Jordan Valley, right through there, has had three major earthquakes uh, in history. A lot of regular earthquakes, but three really big ones. One of them was when Uzziah was king in the 8th century. We're going to reference that here in, in a verse in just a moment. One of them in, was in the uh, 746 uh, when Uzziah was king. Second one was in 1033. The third one was in 1927. 1927, July the 11th, there was a major earthquake outside of Jericho in Israel. Killed 500, uh, injured 700 more. Massive earthquake. And they're saying the biggest one hasn't come yet to Israel. Reading about it today, four months ago, February of 2023... The Geological Survey of Israel combined with Tel Aviv University, and they have been studying earthquakes in, in Israel. And they are saying Israel is long overdue for a major and disastrous earthquake. Authorities four months ago said it's not a matter of if it's going to happen to Israel, it's a matter of when it's going to happen. It's 100% going to happen, is what they said. So, uh, Three years ago, in 2020, during the COVID year, they set up a platform in the Dead Sea and conducted seismological soundings, and they concluded that there is going to be an earthquake that registers 7.5 or greater on the Richter scale that's going to hit Israel in the northern region of the Dead Sea. Where's the Mount of Olives? It butts up against the northern region of the Dead Sea. It will cause mass disaster, mass casualties, they're saying. Israel is saying that all buildings, schools, and hospitals built before 1980 are going to be leveled, and that they said we're not prepared. They are saying from those soundings, they said if an earthquake appears in the northern Dead Sea region area, which is the Mount of Olives, where they meet there, Jerusalem will have three seconds to respond. Tel Aviv, about 30 miles away, will have 18 seconds to respond. And Haifa, on the northern border, uh, probably a good hour and a half away, will have 30 seconds to respond. It's going to be that massive. The Israeli army, we do know, uh, preparing. They said, we're preparing for a major disaster here. It's either going to be a war, it's going to be an earthquake, but we know one of the two is going to happen. So, as you look at all of that in the current events and you see how it's going to be described in verse 4, it's exactly what the Bible describes is going to happen. The last, there's going to be a massive earthquake that's basically going to level the Mount of Olives. Half of it will fall to the north, half of it will fall to the south. 
that means it's going to leave a large east-west valley between the two. So Revelation 16 verses 18 and 19 seem to indicate that's where then the, those that try to escape will try to escape. Dr. Feinberg says, quote, words cannot express more plainly than verse 4, the literal, personal, visible, and bodily return of Jesus Christ in power to the earth again. And that's what verse 4 is talking about. And Jesus once again returns and verse 4 describes it. Let's go to verse 5. And you shall flee the valley of my mountains. Remember the east-west valley that's from the earthquake. For the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Let's talk about a couple of things in verse 5 for a moment. So when the earthquake happens, the Israelites are going to try to flee for safety through this valley with mountains on either side that's fallen, the remains of mountain on either side. As you think about that, it kind of sounds like the Exodus, doesn't it? The Exodus where the Israelites are in bondage in Egypt and, and the waters part and they roll up on each side and they go through and... And there's walls on each side, and they have a valley of escape. They have an echoidos, a way out. And so it sounds like Israel's flight through the Red Sea, the Exodus, will be kind of be replicated here at the Valley of Armageddon. And it says the valley would reach as far as Azal. Where is Azal? Well, we don't know. It's mentioned in Micah 1.11 by reference, and that's all. And here, and that's it. So we don't even know where Azal is. There have been a lot of theories. One theory is, well, it's the modern New Testament Bethany. Maybe, but there's not a lot of evidence, that archaeological evidence. Uh, Cyril of Alexander years ago said that, well, no, it's just a little town that developed north of, of Israel. Um, but there's archaeological evidence in 1873 and 1874 that seemed to indicate that, that Azal is, is a place, what was known in the Old Testament as Mount Corruption. It's where Solomon went to worship false gods to appease all of his wives. They call it Mount Corruption, which is north of Israel. Today, you can go by it. It's where the Valley of Hinnom and the Valley of Kidron meet. And so, most likely, that's Azal which would mean it's about several miles to the north. So there seems to be a block. The earthquake's so severe, it will go all the way to the north to block things off. All It would reach as far as Azal. And it says they will flee, they will run from this earthquake, just as they did during the earthquake that happened during King Uzziah's reign as king over Judah. Now, let's stop there for a moment. If you go back in history, in the Old Testament, there was a massive earthquake that happened during the reign of King Uzziah. Amos, the prophet Amos, gives us some insight to it because it, Amos 1.1 tells us, this is the prophecy of Amos the shepherder and tender of sycamore trees from Tekoa who, who prophesied two years before the earthquake. So why would he reference the earthquake as a reference to document his ministry? So there had to be something massive that happened. 
that everybody remembered. He calls it the earthquake. So it had to be something big. So for years, archaeologists really couldn't figure out. We, we know we got a big earthquake. Amos talks about it. And, and now Zechariah talks about it. So you're going to run like you did during the days of Uzziah. And so everybody in Israel remembered it. They knew it. So what are we missing since we're not Israelites? Well, archaeologists have kind of, geologists have kind of gone back and started trying to find evidence of this earthquake. And they have. They've discovered where they think the epicenter is. It's a, a tell called Tel Agal uh, in the Jezreel Valley. Geologists have found evidence of broken masonry walls and displaced walls from the 8th century. They think it was an earthquake the magnitude of 8.2 or greater. It's massive. In fact, it was such a large earthquake they have uncovered, archaeologists have, casement walls that were never even repaired. They were too badly damaged. They just said, forget it. So there appears to be an earthquake that happened in the days of Uzziah that was so devastating they didn't even try to rebuild. And now Zechariah compares the earthquake in the last day in Israel to the days of Uzziah. So it's going to be a massive earthquake at the end during Armageddon that's going to precipitate all this. And it says, then the Lord my God will come, verse, end of verse 5, and all the holy ones with him. Now, in that day, God's going to, to rule over all the earth. But it says here that he will come and the holy ones will be coming with him. Who are the holy ones? Could be angels. Could be Christians who have gone on to heaven. A lot of theories. We don't really know. We just know that the holy ones will be coming with him. Probably heavenly beings, but we don't know that for certain. Let's go to verse 6. On that day, we're still talking about the last days. There shall be no light, cold, or frost. Now let's stop there for a moment. This is an odd verse, isn't it? Bible scholars kind of scratch their head at this and say, we don't really know what it's talking about. This is a tough, this is a difficult verse. Because at the end, at Armageddon, when Jesus returns... The lights of the sky will dwindle. Literally in Hebrew means congeal. Something congeals, what does it do? It cools and turns into a blob. Solidifies. So light, the lights of the sky, will, heavenly bodies will do that. There will be a reduction of light on the earth. Joel talks about it, 315 Amos talks about it, Acts 5, Amos 5.18, that at the end there will be a reduction of light. So evidently the loss of light will be because the heavenly bodies begin to congeal. They begin to thicken to the point where they can't shine as brightly. That's strange, isn't it? The heavenly bodies are going to do that. Now, some have referred this passage back to Noah's co God's covenant with Noah in Genesis 8.22. Let me mention that right quick. If you remember in the days of Noah, Genesis 8, after the flood, God made a covenant with Noah. And in the covenant, he says, chapter 8, verse 22, from now on there will be seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, summer day and night. And so now it appears that he's reversing that. And that 
promise was given to Noah to assure humanity in a fallen world the regularity of nature. God's going to give you nature to be regular. You're going to know what's going to happen winter, summer, spring. It's going it's to be regular because man needed to know that in a fallen world. But now the world was no longer, the curse is gone That's when Armageddon happens. So only light is needed from one continuous day, a lesser light. Some people have made this as a reference back to that Genesis 8:28 covenant with Noah. When saying there will be no light, no cold, no frost, it's not needed. You don't, you don't need the regularity of nature anymore. The earth isn't cursed. Go to verse 7. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but at evening time, there shall be light. So, saying during Armageddon, it will be evidently like twilight, not fully night, not fully day. Even in the evening, there will be more light than usual. You've been to Alaska in the summertime, you kind of know what we're talking about. I mean, it's 10 o'clock at night, and it's it's not dark, it's kind of, it looks like dusk, and, it get, and then, it, then the sun comes up in a few more hours. And so that kind of appears to what it sounds like, a unique day in human history, known only to God. Now, we are told in the Gospels that the Son of Man himself doesn't even know what day and when he'll return, only the Father. And that's what Zechariah seems to indicate here as well. So there are a number of passages that talk about cosmic events happening during the last days. And by day, it may mean extended period of time, the word yom rather than 24-hour period. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, so it may go on for several months, who knows, or years, who knows. Uh, so the word day doesn't necessarily mean a 24-hour period. It could mean a 24-hour period. It doesn't have to. And so some say, well, it could be an extended period of time that this happens with the light and all that's going on. Now look at verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Where's the eastern sea from Jerusalem? It's the Dead Sea. You go east, Dead Sea. Where's the western sea? You go from Jerusalem, go west, Mediterranean. The Bible often calls the Mediterranean the western sea or the great sea. So, water is going to flow at the last days, life-giving water flowing out of Jerusalem, half of it flowing to the east to the Dead Sea, half of it flowing west to the Mediterranean Sea. How far is that? Eh, 25, 30 miles, probably, probably to, 25, 30 to Mediterranean probably 15 to the uh, 20 to the Dead Sea. So Jerusalem no longer going to be a dry city. At the end, it's going to be an ever-flowing river of water. Currently, Jerusalem is a pretty dry city. It only has one natural water source. It's the Gihon Spring. Gihon literally means to gush forth in Hebrew. And so it only has one spring, Jerusalem does currently today. And so the spring draws water into an underground cave that fills up when it rains in Israel and when it rains in Jerusalem or snows in Jerusalem in the winter. And then it surfaces up into pools or cisterns. But in that day, it's not going to just pool up. It's going to flow all the way to the east and all the way into the west into the great seas. 
If you remember, Ezekiel 47 prophesied the same thing. If you remember, Ezekiel 47, 8 and 9 prophesied 2,600 years ago that the Dead Sea, which has no sea life, it has no life in it, basically, microbes is about it, because the water is too salty, it's too much salinity and minerals, 10 times saltier than the ocean, about 34% salinity, nothing can live in it, it's too salty. But Ezekiel prophesies in the end days, the Dead Sea is going to be filled with fresh water. And fish are going to be swimming in it. And so this appears to be a part of that prophecy of the fresh water running into the Dead Sea. Now in 2020, you, pro- you may have seen this on YouTube. If not, you go Google it. You'll see it on YouTube. But um, in 2020, Ezekiel 47, a lot of people feel like was partially fulfilled because Israel had a record rainfall, broke a 76-year record for rain in Israel in 2020. Fresh water flowed out of Jerusalem. There's pictures on YouTube of the flowing out of Jerusalem to the Dead Sea. And um, since then, divers from Germany and Israel have discovered the very bottom of the Dead Sea, fresh water springs that have sprung up at the bottom of the Dead Sea. Some of them as large as 50 feet by 65 feet. And they have found fish swimming in sinkholes of the Dead Sea. So some people believe that's the beginning of the Ezekiel 47 being fulfilled. Maybe, maybe not, but some people believe that it is. So it says living water, a metaphor that pictures water as being alive and flowing and quick, constantly moving and shifting course. Now notice it says at the end of verse 8, it will continue in summer as in winter. Israel only has two seasons, summer and winter. We have four. Well, Texas has two, pretty much. We have, we have, we're, we're pretty much the same as they are. We call them four things. They only call them two things, summer and winter. And so that's the reference there. Some people say, is this living water metaphorical or literal? If it's metaphorical, isn't it a metaphor for the Holy Spirit, the living, the, the living waters that flow that Joel talks about? Well, maybe But remember, whenever we studied in Revelation, that one of our principles, if something can be taken literally, take it literally. If there's no reason to make it allegory, don't. There's really no reason to make this allegory. It appears to me to be literal water that is described. Now let's go to verses 9, uh, 10, and 11, and we will uh, close. And the Lord, verse 9, will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So in that day, God rescues Armageddon Israel from all the nations of the world. The whole earth is going to worship the God of Israel as king. There will be no other gods. There will be no other kings. There will be no other so-called gods. He is going to be one And he's going to be only. God's kingdom will be complete. It'll be total. It'll be real. A couple of thoughts. Number one, the Lord's prayer will be ultimately fulfilled. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And it will, where he's worshipped as one. Second of all, Ralph Smith said this. 
At the last day, all of the world will acknowledge the Jewish Shema. What's the Jewish Shema? Remember the Shema, the Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6, that every Jewish child recites twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And all the world will acknowledge, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And that's what verse 9 says. The Lord will be king over all the earth, and on that day the Lord will be one, and His name one. Great insight from Dr. Smith that the entire world will acknowledge the Shema. Go to verse 10. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. Let me explain that for a second. Evidently, when... Jesus steps foot on the Mount of Olives and the earthquake happens. The earthquake is going to be so devastating that all the mountains around Jerusalem are going to be leveled flat. And Jerusalem itself, which is like, kind of like Denver, sits a mile, about a mile high or so, it will remain aloft, aloft, and all the other mountains around it will be just flattened. If you've ever been to Jerusalem and you've seen the mountains that surround Jerusalem, that's, they're incredible. All of them flattened in the earthquake. In fact, the psalm says, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so God surrounds his people. The mountains are pretty impressive surrounding Jerusalem, all directions. In fact, Titus could only come in one direction because of the mountains from the north. So for them all to be flattened, to be amazing from the earthquake. Why? Because the mountains have always been a natural defense for Jerusalem, but defense for Jerusalem is not needed anymore. God will rule in Jerusalem and there will be no need for defense. All the way from Geba, Geba was about six miles to the north, mentioned in 2 Kings 23.8, to Ramon, which is about 35 miles southwest of Jerusalem, mentioned in Joshua 15.32. And all the sites that are mentioned here, Benjamin Gate, Corner Gate, and all that, all that's just to let you, if you look at them on a map, it's north, south, east, west. So he just goes around the map. So all he's telling us is, all the sites mentioned here are north and west, east and south, showing totality. God's going to have complete control, totality over his city. And then verse 11. And it shall be inhabited... For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. People will live in Jerusalem during the millennium. Jerusalem will never again suffer invasion. How many times has Jerusalem been invaded through history? You can't count them. Over and over and over, Jerusalem's invaded because it's a key city. It will no longer be put under a curse or a ban. The, the Hebrew, the, the karim or the karim, uh, the, the, the curse or the ban of destruction. God did it to the Canaanite cities. No longer will it be cursed. No longer will it be banned. In other words, Jerusalem will enjoy safety and security. It has never known. For the first time ever, Jerusalem will be a safe place to live. And that's where our passage ends. Now, one more word, and I'll close. 
Imagine you are an old Jew. You've come back from exile in Babylon. You've started to rebuild the city. You've started to try to rebuild the temple. You get discouraged. You stop. And this old prophet God raises up tells you this. And you go, wow, God's got, he's got a special place for this yet, doesn't he? Might encourage you maybe to pick up your hammer and start working again, huh? Knowing that God has purpose and meaning for what you're going to try to rebuild. It's the, lo- the location, glory days are ahead of it, not just behind it. Be very encouraging, I think, to you if you were one of those Jews who just returned to rebuild the land. Well, it gets pretty interesting next week, too. We'll look at, we'll continue this chapter 12 through verse 12 through the end of the chapter, and we'll close next week with Zechariah. Have any questions or comments, send me afterwards, or feel free to email me as well. Let's close. God, thank you for the promises you give us in your word. It's fascinating to study what's going to happen at the end, knowing you are going to reign supreme as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and everybody will know you are one. So thank you for this. God, help us this week to live in the Lordship of Jesus ourselves. In his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.